Hello, everybody. I think we'll get started. Uh, can everybody hear me? Oh, I, I'm that's unfortunate. Uh, well, uh, some good news is uh, the topic today, uh, everyday logic of economics, is considerably easier to understand than the subject of my first lecture, uh, Praxeology. I, that isn't doesn't follow from that. The lecture is going to be easy to understand, but at least <laughs> the topic is an easier one. We're just going to be discussing applications of Austrian principles to some ordinary everyday situations. Now, before I go into the ones I covered in my uh, my slides, I wanted to mention a. Uh, slide I saw on Facebook uh, just a short time ago that illustrates an error in uh, economic reasoning. I think uh, from what the lectures you've heard, you should be able to spot what's wrong with the what the person said. Uh, this was from uh, Corey Robin, who's a uh, left-leaning professor at, I think, at uh, City College in New York, uh, I'm not going to prejudice the uh, you against him by pointing out that he he's a very big fan of a pro-Stalinist historian, <laughs> uh, Domenico Lucerto. Never mind that. But what he said on his uh, post was he said there are some people who suggest that if we had the government paying for health care this would lead to an increase in demand for uh, uh, people going to the doctor or dentist because they would be able to go without having to pay anything. And he said, you know, this just isn't right because he said, look, he said, even if going to the dentist were free, I wouldn't go in for an extra root canal <laughs> that I didn't need or... I wouldn't take the bus to go down a long ride just to see the doctor to get an extra checkup. And he pointed out many people don't like going to the doctor or dentist at all. So isn't it ridiculous to think if the services were available for free that uh, there would be an increase in the demand for them? And of course, what he's overlooking there, he's not, as they say, thinking at the margin. It may well be true that there are some people or even many people who won't go to the doctor or dentist even if the services were available for free. There would be some people who wouldn't go even if you were paid to go to <laughs> the doctor. But the point it, the key point he's ignoring is that there are some people who would go to the doctor or dentist more at a lower price because we know that when the uh, when the price of a good decreases, then other things being equal, the quantity demanded will increase. So if we set the price at zero, we have very good reason to think that the quantity demanded will increase and, and there would then be a shortage because there wouldn't be 
there'd be more demand at a zero price and there would be medical services offered. So he, he was thinking, he was just generalizing from his own case, he, in the case of other people, said, well, we wouldn't go to the doctor more if a price were lower. So then he's thinking, there aren't people, there aren't going to be marginal changes in the demand. So you see, this is a very clear illustration. If you just uh, understand elementary price theory, you'd be able to see right away what's wrong with this person's argument. If you take a little more advanced price theory, then you'd be able to see what's wrong with being pro-Stalinist, but <laughs> never mind that. So. Now I want to go into uh, what I uh, what I had planned uh, originally. Uh, one point that is very important in understanding Mises, it's a way he has of looking at the market. Uh, as you know, one of the criticisms people have of capitalism, of the free market, and it was one that was it's common now, it's common in the time Mises was writing, is that in the under-capitalism, uh, production is controlled by a few big businesses. It's the large corporations who decide what's going to be produced, and then everyone else has to take whatever they want to produce. It's the big uh, corporate uh, uh, businessmen who really run the economy. And the socialist complaint, or a socialist complaint, against this was, this is a very undemocratic idea. Uh, the, one of the socialist arguments was that under socialism, there will be production for use, not for profit. Production will be decided by what the people want, not what these large uh, corporations decide is they want to produce to make the most profit for themselves. You see, as you see, this is a very popular theme in the recent uh, political election uh, last last year. Uh, Bernie Sanders said this quite a bit, that it's the, the large corporations that are running things. So one of the key points Mises made, and it's a theme you'll find over and over again in his work, is that capitalism is a system of consumer sovereignty. Uh, he didn't invent the phrase consumer sovereignty, it was actually uh, coined by another economist, uh, William H. Hutt, who I think wrote in South Africa Journal of Economics around 1934, and then a later book, uh, Economists and the Public, came out also in the early 30s, who used the phrase consumer sovereignty. But the idea is very present in Mises. And what the idea is that if we say that the businesses exist, you're trying to make a profit. If you're in business, you're trying to make a profit. Then how do you do that? You make a profit by trying to produce what the consumers want. So it's the consumer 
the consumer's demand that's determining what's going to be produced. And uh, Mises speaks of the dollar votes of consumers in, in uh, directing production. Uh, just one point of some, might be of some interest to some of you. In one place, uh, Mises talks of the market as a daily repeated plebiscite in that people are voting. Now, can anyone tell me when he says daily rep repeated plebiscite, where is he taking this phrase from? Okay, it's a very famous essay in the 19th century. Can anybody tell me that? It's, uh, I see the hands are all <laughs> up in the air. Well, it's, an, it's a reference to an essay by Ernest Renan, who was one of the greatest French writers of the 19th century who had an essay called What is a Nation? And he said that a nation is a daily plebiscite. So when Mises used that phrase, he's referring to Renan. Very often in Mises, or at least, he'll refer to, he'll make allusions to various uh, works that he thinks people will have read. So it's important when you're reading to get the full impact of what he's saying to be aware of who he's referring to. Uh, now, uh, one objection to this idea of dollar votes, the idea again that the consumers are uh, voting for what they want, so it's really the consumers who are, who are in charge, the consumers are sovereign, they're determining what's going to be produced. It's not that the large corporations are in charge because even if there are large corporations, they're trying to, they want to make a profit. So the way they do that is to produce what the consumers want. So one objection to this was raised by a number of people, including the Cambridge economist Maurice Dobb, who was a member of the British Communist Party, and he was, he was also, uh, he was a recruiting agent for communist spying, so he wasn't very favorable to the free market. But he said, well, if you say they're dollar votes, don't uh, rich people have many more votes than poor people? Uh, they have a lot more dollars. And that's certainly true, but on the uh, if you uh, Mises points out if you take the 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 rich person would have many more dollars than any individual poor person, but if you take the masses considered as a group, their demand will outweigh that of even the rich people. So Mises says over and over again, capitalism is a system of mass production for the masses. Uh, and further, uh, one feature in which uh, capitalism differs from political democracy, in which you have people voting, this is where you have, here you have dollar votes, is that in a political democracy, you would have the winners are the ones with the most votes. 
if, say, you, your candidate didn't win the election, you're out of luck. But in under the free market, even if not many people want what you do, as long as there are enough people who want it, then you, it's profitable to produce for them, then you're still going to be able to get what you want. So it's the system of dollar votes under capitalism is really better at supplying what people want than political democracy is uh, at uh, giving the voters what they want in that, again, uh, not only the majority gets what it wants, but even minorities, as long as there are enough, enough of the people who want something so that it can be profitably produced. Now, one thing I think is interesting to note here is a difference between uh, Mises and Murray Rothbard here on nature of uh, property rights. Now, you notice in what I've said so far, Mises doesn't say anything about property rights. His defense of the market is that really it's the consumers who are controlling things. The consumers are the real owners because the uh, producers are trying to produce what they want. Uh, he doesn't say, he doesn't say uh, who has a natural right to property. And he was very suspicious of that concept. He didn't accept natural rights. Now, you can certainly accept natural rights, as I do, but that's consistent with consumer sovereignty. And we'll be discussing one point about that in a few minutes. But it isn't something that's found in Mises. For Mises, the real owners were the masses because they're the ones who are determining what's being produced. Uh, now, uh, we want to now get into an objection Murray Rothbard raised to this whole line of analysis. He didn't like the, Murray didn't like the phrase consumer sovereignty because what he said is, uh, let's suppose a businessman says, okay, the consumers uh, want this, but I'm going to produce what I want. I'm under no legal obligation to produce what consumers want. So we shouldn't say that the consumers are sovereign because if you speak of sovereignty, it suggests that the consumers can order the businessman to produce something and they can't do that. I mean, uh, you probably come across places, say, where, say, uh, the rest, or say you go to a restaurant and they'll just offer certain kind of food. If you don't like it, you can, they don't really care. It reminded me, some, some business had the attitude of a, a professor I once heard who said, uh, I believe in academic freedom. If you don't like what I say, you're free to leave and go to a different class. So some businesses have that attitude and they're perfectly within their legal rights in 
taking that view. But uh, Mises was aware of that point. I don't think he's really differing with Rothbard. He wouldn't have denied that a business has the legal right to refuse to produce what people want, but it would just be if businesses do that, they'll tend to lose money and go out of business and then they'll be replaced by other businesses that uh, will aim to supply the consumers with what they want. It, and Rothbard preferred the term individual sovereignty, and I think he with some justice because it's the individual who's sovereign over his own property, but Mises' point still holds is that if the businessman wants to serve the, make money, the way to do so is to supply the consumers with what they want. Uh, now, uh, what I've given you so far is an argument that consumers, the consumers will determine what's being produced by their demand, uh, but we might raise the point, does, doesn't this just apply to consumers' goods? Say, when you go to the store, uh, you're not buying, unless you're an unusual consumer, you're not buying steel or iron, you might be buying products made of steel, but you're not buying producers' goods, you're not, you're, why wouldn't this point apply only to consumers' goods, that only what people, uh, the only dollar votes are the ones ex by, uh, uh, exercised by people for purchase of consumer goods? And the answer to this is, we take producers' goods, well, we say, what are the producers' goods, what are they're trying to supply the ones who are offering the consumers' goods for sale. So the ones who are demanding uh, their products are the ones who are offering the consumers. And we've already established that those people's demand are uh, uh, set by the dollar vote. So the dollar votes, in effect, uh, spread backwards through the system in that the, at each stage of the system production, the demand will be the, the lower, the next lower stage will determine what's being produced then. And so once you've specified the consumer demands, that gives you the prices of all the other goods. Uh, yeah, so it's really, as I say, the consumer demand is determining all production because, say, uh, suppose you're a steel producer, you'll, you'll be trying to supply the demand of those who are asking for steel, and their demand will, say, they're ones who have steel products, their demand will be, their demand for steel will be determined by the demand for uh, consumers of steel products. Uh, now, oh, one, one thing I should say before I go on to the next one, that this process, you remember, what is the name for this process by which the uh, prices at the lower level determine the prices at the higher level? 
this was covered, I think, in uh, one of the lectures. Uh, yeah. Yes, that's right. It's called imputation. Once we get the price, the, the first level determines the price throughout the whole system. Now, one mistake we have to avoid here, and this was made by the great economist Joseph Schumpeter, who was from Austria, but he wasn't a member of the Austrian school. Uh, he said he used imputation as a point against Mises' socialist calculation argument. What he said was, uh, well, Mises acknowledges you could have prices for consumer goods in a socialist economy. The calculation argument is about uh, concerns alternative uses of pro production goods. He, it's, you can, it's once you have certain uh, consumer goods, then there's a question, how do you allocate resources with alternative uses to these different production goods? So Schumpeter said, well, look, there isn't a problem because according to the Austrian theory, you have imputation. Once you've got the price of the consumer's goods, then you're able to get the price of all the other goods. So why is the socialist why is there supposed to be a socialist calculation problem? And the response to this is that imputation isn't automatic. At each stage, it's the entrepreneurs, business people who are trying to make a profit, who are trying to anticipate the uh, demand for their products by the lower stage of production. So it isn't a matter of it isn't an automatic process. It requires entrepreneurial judgment. And then Mises' calculation argument would be you can't, they won't be able to formulate these judgments without numerical prices. So imputation isn't a point against the, uh, the uh, socialist calculation argument. Uh, Now, uh, one argument that's sometimes raised against what the whole process that I've described so far, in which the uh, consumers determine what's produced on the market, is that uh, what's produced should be determined by moral standards or how production takes place should be determined by moral considerations. Uh, for example, uh, uh, workers should get, always be paid a living wage. They should always be paid enough to live on, or uh, the prices for necessities shouldn't be high because then poor people won't be able to afford these necessities, and this is morally bad. This is a theme, when Mises was addressing this theme, this theme it was, uh, this was, he was concerned especially with uh, certain, uh, certain views of Catholic social teaching, for example, found in the papal encyclical of 1931, Quadragesimo Anno of Pius XI, which continued the uh, 1891 encyclical was uh, uh, Leo XIII Rerum Novarum, and that those they 
were not entirely hostile to the market, but they spoke of the need for a living wage. This is a theme you find a lot of people giving today also. Uh, so what Mises' response to this is that, uh, suppose we apply these moral standards as the critics want, then production won't be determined by consumer demand. It'll be determined by application of these standards. But then, if that was the case, we need some criterion, we need some way of deciding what should be the appropriate prices for the various goods and services offered on the market. It isn't enough just to point out certain moral standards. We then have to say, well, how would pricing take place? And Mises said the people who advocate these views never tell us that. They don't come up with some alternative means of pricing other than the ones, the, the free market method. So he said that if, if we don't have any alternative to the free market pricing, then production couldn't take place. It would just be a chaotic situation. People would be trying to be guided by these moral standards, but they wouldn't be able to produce anything. Now, one point here, it's uh, perhaps a bit tricky, but I think it's a very important point, is that when Mises says this, he isn't making a value judgment of his own. He isn't saying, uh, I think living wage is a bad idea. I don't like living wage. I'm sure he didn't, but that isn't his point here. He's just making a scientific statement. Uh, this system won't work. You won't be able to produce if you... Uh, don't have some criterion for prices. So he's not making a value judgment of his own. He's, he's just pointing out what's required for economic calculation. Uh, now, uh, this leads to a more general point, is that uh, the government, one way the government can try to interfere with is to take over production altogether, to have a full system of socialism. But this isn't the only way the government can interfere with production. Another way is to try to restrict market production. So you'd still have a price system. You'd still have prices being determined by demand and supply. You'd still have the consumers deciding matters by their dollar votes. But there would be various restrictions on the market, such as minimum wages, rent control, tariffs. So the, uh, the producers wouldn't be able to supply uh, 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 the consumers in an unhindered way with what they want. Uh, now, Mises has a characteristic way of analyzing such measures, such proposals. What, he, what his way of proceeding, he says, well, look, 
here is the goal that the advocates of such measures say that they want. And he then says, I can show, or economics can show, that the measure proposed won't succeed in uh, giving, in getting the, this goal, won't attain the goal that's being sought. So the measure is in that way irrational. It won't get what its advocates want. And once again, a crucial thing to notice here is that this is not a value judgment on his part. It's a strictly scientific statement. He's saying this won't work. It isn't that he's saying, again, he, I'm sure he did hold these value judgments, uh, minimum wage laws are bad or I don't like minimum wage laws. He, rather, he's saying minimum wage laws won't succeed in their aim of raising workers' wages without leading to unemployment. So again, it's a strictly scientific uh, claim. Now, uh, let's take an example. This is an example, the example Mises uses. Uh, let's suppose that the government decides that the price of milk is too high, uh, that at a price there are poor people who are unable to buy milk. They'll, it, it's too costly for them. So the government decides, well, we want the poor people to be able to uh, have milk at lower prices, so they impose a price ceiling. They say the price of milk can't be above a certain amount where the ceiling is, is below the market price. So what's going to happen once they do that? Uh, well, when you have the uh, the lower price, then there'll be more people who want milk. There'll be a greater demand for milk. Now, of course, referring to uh, Corey Robbins' point, there will be some people who won't want more milk. Some people hate milk. They'll never drink milk <laughs> under any circumstances. But that doesn't, uh, that isn't, go against the point that if the price is lowered, there'll be a greater uh, quantity demanded. Uh, people want more milk. But the suppliers won't be increasing the supply of milk. On the contrary, uh, there'll be some people, some producers who were barely making money who will go out of business because uh, they they'll when they they were uh, at the lower price they will no longer be able to make a profit. Now, one point I think is worth noticing in Mises' analysis is not essential to his analysis, but it's an interesting assumption. Is that he's assuming that in a business there are different uh, rates of profit that some people or some businesses are making more profit than others. So it isn't, uh, he's not talking about a, a, a state of equilibrium. There are some people who are making more than others, and the ones who are at the margin will tend to go out of business. Uh, so uh, the result will be that 
there is a less quantity of milk available than before. So you see, what was the, remember, what was the aim of the, uh, the milk control measure? I mean, the milk, the price uh, ceiling on milk was to make more milk available in greater quantities to the poor, but it doesn't have this effect. It reduces the supply of milk. So you see Mises' point here, the measure doesn't attain the goals that the advocates say wanted for it. So by saying, in pointing this out, Mises again is not making a value judgment. He's just, he's just saying this is a scientific statement of what will happen if you put this measure into effect. Uh, so, uh, just to give another example of this uh, process, uh, suppose they, it was, you'll see it's exactly the same pattern as the one we've just gone through with the pricing on milk. Suppose the government decides rents are too high, poor people can't find uh, housing at these very high rents, so they'll impose rent control. So what is the result of that? Well, again, there's uh, going to be a, a increased demand for housing. People will find, say, they didn't they didn't want an apartment, say, uh, charging two thousand dollars a month. But if the price the rent control is only five hundred dollars a month, then they'll they'll want to get an apartment. So there'll be a greater demand for apartments, but there won't be an increased supply. On the contrary, uh, the landlords who were barely making profit before will withdraw uh, rental units from the market, and the result will be a housing shortage. So you see, again, we have a pattern. The measure didn't work. It doesn't attain the ends that the advocates wanted for it. Uh, so uh, uh, I'll give just one more. This is minimum wages. Now, the difference between minimum wages and the other two examples, the price control on milk and rent control, is that the price controls on milk and rent control set maximum prices. It's a price ceiling. It says the price can't rise above such and such. Even though the market price is higher, uh, they say this is what you're limited to charging. Now, minimum wage is different. It's a price floor. It says uh, to the business, you can't offer a worker below a, a wage below a certain amount. So what happens if you have a minimum wage where the minimum wage rate is, is uh, above what the market minimum wage rate is? What we have to ask, how, what determines the wage in the free market? It's basically what will it be profitable for an employer? When will it be profitable for an employer to 
hire a worker, it will depend on what the worker is producing. It will, the worker will be of value to the employer if uh, what he's producing is at least slightly more than the wage he ha the employer has to pay, or to put it in more technical terms, I'm sure you've had covered this in your in other lectures, uh, the worker will be paid the discounted marginal uh, product of what he's producing. So if the minimum wage is above that, then it won't be profitable for the employer to hire the person or if the person's already working for him, the employer will have a reason to get rid of that employee. So, the uh, again, the measure doesn't work because it was supposed to benefit the workers, supposed to raise wages for them. But in fact, if it, it the minimum wage is above the discounted marginal product, then it'll cause unemployment. So again. Uh, we have this pattern, again, it's a scientific statement, uh, this interventionist measure doesn't work. Uh, now, uh, one other example is uh, uh, tariffs are sometimes proposed because they say, well, we want to help workers in this country, workers are losing jobs uh, to overseas uh, workers, so we want to have tariffs on certain products. But the result there will be more expensive products for consumers, and this will also encourage the formation of cartels. This actually played, uh, the tariffs played an extremely important role in the cartelization of the German industry in the late 19th, early 20th century. And if you read uh, Mises' book, Omnipotent Government, came out in 1944. You can get an account of that process. Uh, now, what happens when these measures fail? They don't achieve their goal. Uh, so, one thing the government can do is to try to counter the failure by imposing further restrictions on the market. For example, uh, take the first case again. Suppose there's a uh, the government imposed a price control on milk, and then some uh, suppliers of milk go out of business because they can't get enough, uh, they won't earn enough profit. Then the government can respond by uh, imposing further price control, say, on the ones who supply milk wholesalers who supply milk to the people who sell it retail. They can say, okay, these retailers aren't making enough profit, so we'll deal with that by imposing price controls on the ones who supply them with milk. But then you'll get the same process that those suppliers will, who don't make profit will go out of business. That won't work either. Uh, so, if this process continues, uh, 
the government can just decide, well, we're going to forget about price controls, let's get back to the market. But if they don't do that, then one result can be a, a price control spreading throughout the whole economy. Uh, and Mises was especially interested, there was, this actually happened in Germany in uh, World War I, that you, they had price controls that did spread through the whole economy. This was called the Hindenburg Plan. Uh, Hindenburg wasn't the one who, uh, who uh, put it in, but it was named for him. He was the uh, leading general in the German uh, army, who later became uh, president of Germany under the Weimar Republic. But under the Hindenburg Plan, you, you get through price control, a uh, very rapid so, uh, socialization of the entire economy. Uh, and Mises point out that this happened in England during World War II, that you had price controls and rationing throughout the whole economy. It was a form of socialism. So he makes the uh, striking claim that it wasn't the post-World War II labor government of Clement Attlee that brought socialism to England. It was Winston Churchill who was uh, the conservative prime minister who brought socialism to England. This is somewhat surprising. I mean, Churchill was not, had not been known as an opponent of the free market. On the contrary, he was a great fan of the libertarian writer Garrett Garrett, and he also liked Hayek's book, Road to Serfdom. It came out in 1944, but still, according to Mises, he was the one who brought socialism to England uh, through this system of price control. Uh, now, another example of price control, uh, of having price controls uh, result in the form of socialism, was the Nazi economy during World War II. And in the interpretation of Mises differs from the Marxist interpretation. According to the Marxist, uh, Nazi, the Nazi system was really controlled by the large capitalists in Germany. The Nazi, the Nazi party was, the name is National Socialist, but according to the Marxists, that was just a ruse. It was really the capitalists who were in charge of the economy. But Mises said, no, that isn't right. Under the Nazi system, it was the government who was deciding on all the prices uh, and, and wages, that they were the ones, the government, uh, even though they were ostensible private owners, but the government told everyone, all these people, what they could produce and what they couldn't. So it wasn't it was a system of private property and private ownership in name only. So there are two types of socialism. There's the one where the government is officially the owner of the means of production. And there's this other type where the government is really running things even though you have uh, private owners in name only. I should say for those of you who are taking the 
written an oral exam, please take note of that because that question sometimes comes up in the exam. Uh, now, and just one other example is of uh, how an interventionist measure fails is that many people propose very high taxes on rich people. They say, oh, isn't it unfair, uh, say, uh, uh, someone, uh, Bill Gates has so much more money than I do. Well, practically everybody has much more money than I do, but never mind that. But so should, isn't it unfair? Shouldn't we ta have big taxes on him? So it's unfair that he gets so much more money than other people. But Mises points out that what will the rich people do with their money? They can't spend it all, they will invest most of it, and the investment increases the, uh, increases, uh, the supply of capital. And what happens then? Then productivity goes up. And you remember, we covered this before, that the wages depend on what the worker produces, the discounted marginal product determines wage. So if you have rich people investing, then this will lead to more uh, better conditions for the poor. So again, this isn't a value judgment, it's just a scientific claim on Mises' part. So I think we can see after all these examples, the general pattern of Mises' analysis, at least I hope so, so I think we'll stop at this point. Thanks very much. <laughs>